is our expectation as we just sang to acknowledge your ultimate glory and majesty as your word points us to that great picture of every tribe, nation, and tongue, people redeemed from every tribe, nation, and tongue, singing your praises, singing of gratitude for your grace, singing of your honor and glory, and that is the desire of our hearts to be counted among those in that great choir. It is the longing of our hearts to be there at the end of this life's journey, as it were, at the end of this life's testing, as the song says, to be there with the race finished and the fullness of your promises realized when we are in your presence and ultimately when we are in your presence in our resurrected bodies to be with you forever. Again, Lord, help us to meditate often on your lordship, on your greatness, on your majesty, on your authority and your headship over your church and help us to think often about the reception of all that you have accomplished for us in your death and your resurrection, the receiving of the fullness of the promises. And again, the table, the elements of it are a reminder of that promise that we yet await, of your return that is the desire of our hearts. And so encourage us by faith in all of these things, the singing, the reading, the praying, the preaching of your word and the taking of the table together. To that end, I pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, open up your Bibles, if you will, to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. We've been out of Ecclesiastes for a little while, but we're going to come back to it this morning. Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 9. We'll be looking this morning at verses 1 through 10. So Ecclesiastes 9, verses uh, 1 through 10. Let me introduce this uh, portion of Scripture uh, by stating what is obvious, namely that we are... I think I find in my own heart anyway, maybe you find this, uh, confronted with an ever-increasing awareness, uh, a sense, uh, uh, an experience of a world that has been given over to sin, a world that is demonstrating that there is no ultimate meaning or pleasure or joy to be found here in and of itself. We as Americans, I think, sense that in one sense, uh, in one way, because we have built into us by our sort of cultural consciousness this idea that things are always going to get better, everything's going to work out, we'll pull it out in the end, and things are going to be okay. And yet we as Christians realize that that's not the case, because at the end of the day, the future even of our own lives or of this nation doesn't rest ultimately in the sovereignty of our own hands but in the sovereignty of God, in the purposes of God, in the will of God who is working out his own plan, his own purposes which we are reminded ultimately ends in the summing up of all things under the administration of Christ and that is our hope and that is our joy. We're realizing more and more that that is not to be found in this world. And, and I think for many that's particularly disappointing because there is that idea of the plans for the future and who knows what God has in plan ultimately. But that's where everything again is just going to work out. Our, our bank accounts are going to increase. Our investments are going to increase in value. Uh, our safeties and freedoms and securities that we have enjoyed for so long are going to be secure, but they're not. They're not. The only security that we ultimately have as Christians is to be found in Christ and in the security of the promises of his word and what he is accomplishing for us in Christ. And so Solomon, in a sense, brings us through, through one vantage point into these realities and saying, well, how do we live in a world that seems to be so governed by chaos? And how do we live as Christians by faith in a God who doesn't work according to our plans and according to our ways, who works in a way that is mysterious to us? How do we live with with joy and meaning and purpose in light of the fact that everything that we accomplish here amounts at the end of the day to nothing, to futility, to use the word of Ecclesiastes. Well, he gives us some instruction and help. 
uh, in that area. So we're going to summarize this passage uh, in this way. Four directives for living by faith in light of the mysteries of providence and death. It's kind of a long title, I guess, but that's what it is. We'll go with it. It's four directives for how to live by faith in the enjoyment of life by faith in this passing world with all of its mysteries, with all of its uncertainties, yet we are called to trust in God and to live joyfully before him. So let me read the passage and then we'll look at this more closely. Beginning in verse 1 of Ecclesiastes 9. For I have taken all this to my heart and explain it, that righteous men, wise men, and their deeds are in the hand of God. Man does not know whether it will be love or hatred. Anything awaits him. It is the same for all. There is one fate for the righteous and for the wicked, for the good and for the clean and for the unclean, for the man who offers a sacrifice and for the one who does not sacrifice. As the good man is, so is the sinner. As the swearer is, so is the one who is afraid to swear. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that there is one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity, is in their hearts throughout their lives, and afterwards they go to the dead. For whoever is joined with all the living, there is hope. Surely a live dog is better than a dead lion, for the living know they will die, but the dead do not know anything, nor have they any longer a reward, for their memory is forgotten. Indeed, their love, their hate, and their zeal have already perished, and they will no longer have a share in all that is done Under the sun. Go then, eat your bread in happiness and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time and let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given you to you under the sun. For this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. And there it is, that that common blend as we go through Ecclesiastes of pessimism in one sense, the, the idea that everything is futile in light of the reality of death and a creation under the curse. And yet a sense of hope as well, a hope that all is not meaningless, all is not lost when we look beyond our immediate circumstances and upward to God and to realize that there is one who is in control. Let's look first then at verse 1, and this will be trust in God's control over the inscrutable. This is the first directive, that trust in God's control over the inscrutable, over the things that we can't understand, over the things that are beyond our power and beyond our control. Again, he says in verse 1, For I have taken this to my heart and explain it, that righteous men, wise men, and their deeds are in the hand of God. And this is the climactic expression of Solomon's search to understand life under the sun. And really, he's connecting this, that open, uh, your translation has four, uh, goes back to what he began at the end of chapter 8, which was namely this, that in verse 16, I gave my heart to know wisdom, to see the tasks done under the sun, so on and so forth. He says, I saw every work of God and concluded that man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. Even though a man should seek laboriously, he will not discover, and though the wise man should say, I know, he cannot discover. This is the all this that he has taken to heart. That there is no answer. There is no human wisdom, no matter how wise the person, that can make sense out of the op- what is observed in this world and in this life. That's life under the sun. It's left him with only one conclusion, which he states in the middle, that Righteous men and wise men and their deeds are in the hand of God. In other words, they're under his sovereign control. They are under the dictates of his purposes and his wisdom and what he ordains. And although he doesn't mention this directly, the only implied resolution, it is the resolution throughout all of Ecclesiastes. Remember, this is within the covenant scriptures of the Old Testament, 
the old covenant people of God. And that is this, that this kind of mystery, this kind of inability, ineptness of man to figure it out leads us to only one place rightly, and that is trust in God, to trust him. It leads us back to him in whom in whose hand are the deeds of all men. It compels us to a believing heart to trust God. It pushes the believing heart to understand that the secret things belong to the Lord. That is his sovereign plan, his sovereign will, his secret things, the things that he ordains that he has not revealed to us, but we know only as he brings them to pass. He says in Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we may observe all the words of this law. He has given us what we are to do. He has told us what we need to know and everything else he has kept to himself. And so Solomon points us to the fact that we live within mystery, but under the hand of God. Man is under God's hand. Now, he's already built the case that the life of man is ordered by this secret will of God who operates above our ability to rationalize. That was the whole point. If you'll remember back in chapter three, you don't have to turn there. He says this, however, there is in verse one, there is an appointed time for everything and there is a time for every event under the sun. There's a time for every extreme in life and everything in between. A time for life, a time for death, and everything in between. It is ordained by God. It says in verse 11, he has made everything appropriate in its time. In chapter 7, verse 14, he reminded us that in the day of prosperity, be happy, but in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. It lies in the hand and the purposes of God. And this strikes then to the core of our fallenness, doesn't it? And really to the fallenness of man. What is at the, at the essence or of the essence of sin? It is to live independently from God. It's autonomy. It's autonomy. That's at the very heart of the, the temptation. Take something that God has not given you. Take it by your own will for your own purposes and to your own end. In all of its subtle forms and its most grotesque forms, that is at the heart of sin. That is the pride of man, to live independently. And this strikes at that. It's related then to our fallenness to chafe at this reality that our hands are, our lives are in the sovereign hand of God. This is summarized well in the concluding line of a poem named Invictus by William Ernest Henry. We've mentioned this before, but the last line says this. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I am the one who determines the end of my life. Or the anthem of that rebellious Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. Which we chuckle, but I, I think in you as well. find that to be one of the saddest songs I ever heard. To hear it. It grieves my heart every time. I did it my way. I did it my way. I did it according to my dictates, my wisdom, my knowledge, my purposes, my pleasure, my ends, my power, my strength, my glory. That's the definition of sin. That's the definition of rebellion. And so when, when we are brought to the reality that our hands, our lives, does not ultimately lie in our hands, it lies in the hand of God, man in rebellion chafes at that. There's a way that seems right to man, but in the end... It leads to death, and man does not want to hear that. However, this reality is also particularly poignant in our present age. If there's one thing that we have a sense of, particularly in our age, is of control, isn't it? Our culture, that we control things. Technology has always been a part of humankind. That's a part of God's design as his image bearers to rule and subdue over earth. But particularly as technology advances... You could even go back to the industrial age or before then, but particularly around that time, there is a sense where man more and more begin to have a sense of control over creation, a sense of control over the outcome of events. It leads to a pride, a sense of hubris, the idea that we are the ones sovereign over our own destiny. What is the ultimate expression of this is that I can ignore nature Transgenderism is actually the ultimate expression of this. 
that I no longer am bound even to the realities of nature. If I don't like it, I can be my true sovereign self and change it by surgery, technology, hormones. I'll make it different than what I want it to be. There's, you could take that back to part of the mantra of feminism, even with the pill. The whole motive of the pill, and I'm not getting into whether it's right or wrong and planning or any of that, but the whole idea of that was that I want sexual freedom without consequences. Why do guys get to have sex and not get pregnant and girls have to get pregnant? Let's take care of that. That was the thinking behind it from a feminist perspective. But the idea is that there is a built into us a sense of control that we can master it. What do we all do? I was just learned how to use Hey Siri on my iPhone. Uh, one of my daughters set up for it. So I, I, like, I love this now. Actually, I think I annoy them sometimes with the, the things I ask it. But the point is, is that we have information at our fingertips. We have knowledge. One made the point that you can find out everything you want to know about the Ming Dynasty by Googling it, even if you don't spell it right. <laughs> the idea is that it's there. It's at our fingertips. I know I chuckled at that too. But the idea is that there's a sense of power. It's a sense in which we feel like we can manipulate creation to our own whims of des and desires. Who needs a God in a world like that? Who needs a God in a world like that? We live in a moment in which probably more than any other time in history, man collectively reflects that, that proud statement found after the flood in which man was building a tower and they said, let us make a great name for ourselves. And God himself said that united with one language and one purpose, collectively with all of the wisdom and abilities that God has endowed man with, he himself said, now nothing they purpose to do will be impossible for them. And that's what we see even now. Yet with all this hubris, with the stubborn facts of reality stare back at us, we are ultimately not in control of our future, our lives, or the world. As Solomon says here, our deeds are in the hand of God. And that is extremely humbling. Particularly when we realize that there is so much that is inscrutable to us. He says here, particularly, man does not know whether it will be love or hatred. Anything awaits him or anything lies before him. So the question here is, what is love or hatred? What is he talking about here? Well, there's two ways that we can understand this. It could be that he's looking at this from a, uh, God's perspective or in the sense of focus on love or hatred from God or love or hatred from man. If the idea is from God, then then he would mean that whether we don't know whether it will be a favor or hardship from the hand of God, whether the circumstances of life will reflect God's love or God's resistance toward an individual. If it is for man, then the idea is whether the future holds being treated well or with evil from the hands of men, which is how he does use those terms in verse 6, speaking of their love and their hate, speaking of man's love or hate. It's a difficult decision. But I think the emphasis lies here, and this is commonly how it's held, and I think for good reason, is that he's looking at it from the perspective of our discernment of God's attitude toward us. Love or hatred here being akin somewhat to is when the Old Testament says, Esau I hated, or Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. One was, one was marked with love by God's favor to him, and the other was by God's rejection of him for his unbelief. But the other words, or to some, the point is likely this. You cannot tell God's attitude towards you then simply by looking at circumstances because circumstances will not provide an answer for you. As a matter of fact, he just said in verse 14 of chapter 8, there is a futility which is done on the earth. You'll remember this. That there is, that is, there is, there are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. On the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say this too is futility. You can't figure it out. Being righteous does not guarantee a positive outcome. And being wicked does not necessarily mean it'll be a negative outcome. Just in the course of life, read through the Psalms. What is one of the frustrations of the Psalms is that the wicked seem to boast. They seem to have no problem. They enjoy all this affluence. And the righteous are suffering. They're afflicted. Who can figure that out? And yet God is on his throne. 
The reality is that both the righteous and the wicked as well experience the effects of the fall. If an earthquake comes to the city, the righteous and the wicked die alike. If a flood comes and takes out a town, the the wicked and the righteous die alike. We can't judge merely by what is observed in that sense. And God's people certainly know the ever-fluctuating realities of life that move from times of ease to times of trial. And this is, just as a footnote here, part of the great evil and the lie and the deception of those who hold that faith necessarily will produce God's blessing on this earth in the sense of wealth or health or prosperity. Many of you, of course, come out of that kind of situation And if it doesn't work out, what is the response? Well, you didn't have enough faith. So if bad happens to you, it's your fault. You didn't believe. If good happens to you, it's because you did believe, and it's to your credit, each of which is a perversion of what it means to trust God. And that's what he says here. We don't know. We simply don't know what the outcome is going to be. And this is, again, the consistent experience of God's people throughout the ages. David knew what it was like, at one sense, to be given this great promise and this great certainty of the posterity of his kingdom, the great glorious promise made to him in the Davidic covenant. And yet he also knew what it was like to run from Saul and hide in caves and have his life continually under threat for years, to have to go and live in a foreign land to escape the pursuit of Saul. He also knew what it was like to have that pursuit ended and to be exalted to sit on the throne of a united nation of God's covenant people and to have people subdued under him and nations to fear him and to feign obedience to him and honor to him. He knew what that was like as well. And then he knew what it was like to fall again and have his own son try to usurp his throne and his child die. It was up and down. He knew that. The psalmist knew what it was like to be in spiritual drought and then a time of spiritual blessing and overflowing joy. Naomi and Ruth knew times of sorrow. And there are times of sorrow as we go through Ruth in which it seemed that everything was against her. She says when she returned back to the land because there was a famine in the land where she had gone, her husband died, her two sons died, and she ends up with one of her daughters-in-law, Ruth, as you know. She, she returns back to the land of her birth. And they say, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, but call me Marah, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Marah is the Hebrew for bitter. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? And essentially saying, everything is against me. All is bad. All has gone against me. The Almighty has given me a bitter hand of providence. But then at the end of the book, Ruth meets Boaz. We have the great picture of the kinsman redeemer. We have the lineage of King David. And at the end of that, it says in verse 14, speaking of the women to Naomi after her daughter-in-law was redeemed, As it were, by Boaz, and she came into a place of blessing. They said, blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today, and may his name become famous in Israel. And may he also be your restorer of life and sustainer of your own age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. That was after a child was born to Ruth. The point is, is that it's up and it's down, it's up and it's down, and we never know exactly where it will be. And there is the tendency to say, God is against me, God is disfavored with me, God has rejected me when things are hard. And that's not the case. Things are hard, things are good. We don't know what the end will be. Paul knew what it was like to be in abundance and what it was like to be in want. He knew what it was like to be in safety and what it was like to be in prison. He knew what it was like to be free and he knew what it was like to be chained. James reminds us in James 4 that we go into a city and we want to conduct business, but we don't know whether it will go good or bad, whether we'll make a profit, whether we'll lose money. He says, if it's the Lord's will, if it's the Lord's will, I'll prosper or I won't. So faith then, and where Solomon is directing us, is to trust in God because life is inscrutable. God's providence is past figuring out. And when it's seen with the eyes of faith, When it's seen with the eyes of faith that knows the character of God, not blind faith, but knows the character of God who has acted in our lives, who has acted in history, who has revealed himself 
in his word and been faithful to it, then faith trusts in the character of God and all the mysteries of providence and can say with David, my times are in your hands, Psalm 31, 15. And that's what it means then to rest in faith, to leave the details of our life into the hands of a sovereign God. They are not the product of random events. They are the product of a good father, a sovereign God who's working out his purposes. Of course, Tim just brought us, Pastor Tim, through the life of Joseph and is bringing us through the life of Joseph and reminded us last week of the providence of God. We don't know at any particular point what the end will be. Paul's great statement comes to us and he says, we know that all things God causes to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. All things, the suffering, the blessings, the trials, the deliverances, all of it falls under the sovereign hand of God. He disciplines, he humbles, he matures, he strengthens our fates, he comforts. He does all these things through his various providences in our lives, always working out the greater purpose of being conformed to the character of his son and glorifying himself. And at the end of the day, even Solomon, with all of his under-the-sun wisdom, gives these glimpses that reminds us that there is more than what is under the sun. He says back in verse 14... Or in chapter 8, he says that the sinner, because the sentence against his sin isn't executed quickly, is given over to do evil. But he says this in verse 12, Still I know that it will be well for those who fear God and fear him openly. He knows that there is yet a final vindication of the righteous, a final condemnation of the wicked, even if it's not always experienced in this world. And that's where we have to hope. And that's where we are always, as the people of God, directed to look to the end and remember that ours is to trust what he has revealed, to live faithfully under his providential hand, not to try to figure it all out and not to judge whether he loves us or doesn't love us or is favorable towards us or is not simply by the circumstances of life. And yet, even in all of this, when we respond in faith, we're confronted with the fact that the world is under the sentence of death. That's where he takes us next. And so we're to gain humility then from life's shortness. We're to live by trusting God under his sovereign hand. And to remember that it's all so short anyway. It's the same for all, he says. There is one fate for the righteous and for the wicked, for the good, the clean, the unclean, the one who offers a sacrifice, who doesn't sacrifice, the good, the sinner, the swearer, and the one who is afraid to swear. In other words, everybody. <laughs> everybody. There's one fate. Nobody escapes that fate. What is the fate? It's death. It's death. He makes that clear. It's better to be joined with a live dog than a dead lion. He says right before that, afterwards they go to the dead. In other words, death is the one fate that awaits everyone. Death is the ubiquitous testimony to the reality of sin. And many in talking about this verse, and I... And I agree with this in large part, but many of talking about this section say it's the darkest section in all of Ecclesiastes. It's the most, it's the most uh, in some sense, seen on its own without the whole context. It's, it's a, it has a hopelessness to it. It has a sense of despair. I think we need to look beyond that. That is partly true. If seen on its own, then yes, of course, but this comes in the context of the covenant. It comes in the context of the whole book. But nonetheless, death exists because sin exists. It's the ubiquitous testimony to the reality of sin where there is no sin, i.e. new heavens and new earth. There is no death. Until that point, though, there is death because there is sin. Sin is, death is everywhere because sin is everywhere. And this is true, although here he's talking about ultimate physical death, but it's true even within the regenerate who know that this present body has to die. We have the reality of new life in us, the inbreaking of the new kingdom, the eschatological age of God, the coming of the Holy Spirit, union with Christ, the promise of the inheritance, and yet it's housed within what Paul says, my flesh in which no good thing dwells in Romans 7. And so even this body of sin that believers have needs to perish, it needs to go away. This isn't the ultimate end. That won't be known until what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 15, the perishable, the natural, 
the weak, speaking of our body, the dishonored, is returned to dust from where it came and is raised imperishable, spiritual, glorious, powerful, waiting to fully bear the image of the heavenly and be conformed to the body of his glory, that is, of Christ in heaven. But until then, even for the believer, the body must die. We don't escape that fate any more than an unbeliever does. We die. He says, it is the same for all. That is the great leveler. In other words, no matter how hard you try, no matter how much Botox you inject into wherever they inject Botox, I think it's the face somewhere, no matter how much organic food you eat, no matter how much exercise you do, no matter how much you try to care to protect yourself from everything that could harm you, the reality is that you will die. Young or old, death is coming. We know that. God has given us symbols. You know what that symbol is? It's a tombstone. Can you escape it? Every one of those represents a life, and ours will one day be represented in the same way. And so death is coming. But that doesn't lead us, or should not lead the believing to despair, but rather to wisdom, to gain wisdom. The reality is that even Moses captured this idea in Psalm 90, that we live as passing vapors, as it were, and under the hand of God who is without end, who is eternal, even from everlasting to everlasting, he says, you are God. He says, we've declined our years like a sigh for the days of our life. They contain 70 years due to strength, 80 years. Their pride is labor and sorrow. For soon it is gone and we fly away. And then what does he say? So teach us then in verse 12 to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. A heart of wisdom. David said that, Solomon's father, behold, you've made my days as handbreadths, my lifetime as nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. And so therefore he had prayed right before that. Then, then Lord, because this is true, make me to know the end, my end, and what is the extent of my days, and let me know how transient I am. Why? That I may be wise. So how does that wisdom of death work out in Ecclesiastes? Well, there's a few ways that that works out. It's a main theme. I'm just going to Mention them. It reminds us then that this present world is groaning under the burden and corruption of sin. It reminds us that all of our accomplishments, experiences, and planning are ultimately meaningless if we're looking for meaning in them alone. And it gives us wisdom and compels us to think then of the consideration of how do we live wisely in light of the fact of death. Isn't that what he said back in chapter 7? The mind of the wise is in the house of the morning. The mind of fools is in the house of the of pleasure, but it also stands this reality of the certainty of death as a justification for those who are unbelieving to be given more fully over to their sin, to be given more fully over to their sin. And look at what he says. Furthermore, in the middle of verse three, the hearts of the sons of men then are full of evil and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. It's insanity you could translate that madness. One described the a lexicon, the, the meaning of this word is the root stresses the irrational aspect of insanity and is an antonym of hokmah or wisdom. Hokmah is the Hebrew word for wisdom. It's the ultimate all, all, uh, opposite of wisdom. It's irrational. It's insane. It's the word that was used of David when he was before the Philistine ruler and he feigned madness. Do you remember that? And the, the jewel was coming down his beard and the Philistine king said, what do I have? Do I not have enough madmen in my kingdom that I need to look at this fool before me? That's the idea of it here. It's insanity. It's foolishness. It's untethered from reality. It's a depraved mind. And the location of this evil and this insanity is the heart, which is to say it then describes holistically the condition of man. The hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity. This, again, is nothing new to Solomon. He said there's none righteous, no righteous man on earth. There's no one who does good, who never sins. Men were made upright. They've sought out many devices. But here he puts it into the strongest statement. Insanity is in their hearts. Insanity and madness. 
in light of the reality of death and having no fear of God. So the man in unbelief is tempted to look at the world and all of its inconsistencies and injustices and conclude that either there is no God or he is a weak God or is he is a God with as much moral blemish as us and certainly does not elicit from us worship. The representative for that kind of arrogance, of course, is often, there's many, but Dawkins, who said this, In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference, as that unhappy poet A.E. Hausman put it, for nature, heartless, witless, nature will neither know nor care. That's the response of unbelief. That's the, the mantra in a sense of nihilism. It doesn't matter. It's all just going to end. It's all meaningless. Everything is ultimately meaningless. And again, that's exactly what Solomon is saying if you look at life simply under the sun. It is that. It is completely that. But that's not all that there is. Remember, as he'll make unfold, Ecclesiastes comes by inspiration of the Holy Spirit within a covenant document of Scripture. Ecclesiastes comes from the pen of a man who was chosen by God to be a ruler over a nation whom he called out of all of the nations, whom he gave a promise, whom he delivered with a mighty hand from Egypt, showing that their gods are not gods, but the God of Israel is the one true God. He split the Red Sea. He led them by fire and a cloud. He made water come out of a rock. He gave them manna in the wilderness. He gave them, in Solomon's time, the temple. He gave them the sacrifices. He gave them the priesthood. He is a God who has revealed himself to be there, to be with them, to be the God of their people, a God who is. He's not a God in the imagination of men, for men would never come up with that kind of God. He is a God who has spoken. He is a God who has acted. He is a God who is present. He's God. We do not have the hopeless, nihilistic view, but... Even though he says this, again, this is because he is a man who forgetting who he was and forgetting the realities of the covenant and the significance in his own life sought to go astray and find in this world outside of covenant faithfulness meaning and purpose and significance and it leads him up right here. Meaningless, death, nothing. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on and he says that even still, even though death is a reality, and even though for unbelief it would leave and lead to hopelessness, for those who are believing who live in light of this covenant, there is still value in living. Whoever, he says in verse 4, that's the third point. Know that this is the third directive. Know that life is worth living. First is to trust. The second is to be humbled and gain wisdom. And the third here is to know that life is for living. This will be short because I want to get to the last point. For whoever is joined with all of the living, there is hope. Surely a live dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know they will die, but the dead do not know anything, nor have they any longer a reward, for their memory is forgotten. Indeed, their love, their hate, their zeal have already perished, and they will no longer have a share in all that is done under the sun. So although death brings a sense of sobriety and futility to life under the sun, it does not eliminate the value of life here, or the ability to righteously enjoy the good gifts of God. And he makes this in a striking manner. Look at what he says in verse 4. For whoever is joined with the living, there is hope. Surely a live dog is better than a dead lion. Why is that so striking? Well, of course, in our context, we might miss that. We love dogs, right? We have all kinds of pets. We love dogs. We're a dog family. We're not a cat family. Uh, We're a dog family, (laughs) although we have cats. Anyway... The point here is a dog in the ancient Near East, as you're maybe familiar with, was a despised animal. It was a despised animal. It was hated. As a matter of fact, if you remember when David went to the Philistine Goliath, he said, what am I, a dog that you come to me with sticks? That you would treat me so ignobly? You remember Paul referring to the false teachers, he called them dogs. 
A dog was a despised animal then. A lion was seen with nobility. It was seen to have a sort of regal aspect to it. As a matter of fact, Solomon had said in verse 30 of Proverbs, chapter 30, 30, the lion is mighty among the beasts. It does not retreat before any, any its strength and courage. And so why, why these striking emblems? Because he's showing that, look, even in these most striking terms, even if you were a dog, a despised dog, it's better than a lion who lies dead on the road. In other words, life still has value. It's still worth living. It's better to be alive than dead is the idea. And he's not referring here, as some would see, certainly no evangelical, but some that's referring to soul sleep. In other words, that there's simply a then going out of existence until this final day. There's simply an unconscious existence. He's not teaching that. Solomon has already made clear. Eternity is said in the heart of man that he'll say in chapter 12, as we've already looked at, that the dust will return to the earth as it was, but the spirit will return to God who gave it. This isn't a, any kind of fatalism or soul sleep or unconsciousness. He's simply saying that when we look at life under the sun, we conclude that as far as life is concerned, the dead is a worse state. They have no hope. They have no opportunity to lay hold of all of the things that God has given here. And the live are in a better condition, he says, because they know that they will die. He says that in verse 5. The living know that they will die. They can in one sense, prepare for that. They can live in wisely by knowing that. And they should still then continue in desire to live. He's simply making the point that from the vantage point of under the sun, God gives enjoyments, opportunities, and hope that the dead do not have. It's better to be alive than dead. Again, this isn't a statement about the afterlife, but the present life. Let me just illustrate that for you with one point, just briefly. Isaiah 38, and this, you could find some passages like this in the psalm. But the idea is this, that there's a uniqueness about being alive of how we can walk with God and know God. He says this, the prophet Isaiah in chapter 8, verse chapter 38. For Sheol cannot thank you, death cannot praise you. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your faithfulness. In other words, those are things that are the prerogatives only of the living. It is the living who gives thanks to you as I do today. A father tells a son about your faithfulness. The Lord will surely save me, so we will play my songs on stringed instrument all the days of our life at the house of the Lord. In other words, it's good to be alive. Why? Because we can teach about God's faithfulness. We can offer him praise that the dead can't give, and we can do it here in the earth. And that's this perspective Solomon is looking at. Life under the sun. Life under the sun. And so the point simply here is this, that death does not eliminate God's purpose in this life and the call to live by faith and contentedly under his blessing. Let's get to the last point. And that is this. And this is where he's leading. And this is gonna lead us even beyond what is on immediately seems to be the surface. And the last point is this. Enjoy, we are to enjoy God's blessing. We are to, or righteously embrace God's good gifts. Righteously embrace God's good gifts. We are to enjoy his blessing. Look what he says. Go then, eat your bread in happiness and drink your wine with a cheerful heart for God has already approved of your works. Let your clothes be white all the time and let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love. All the days of your fleeting life he has given you under the sun. This is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. Therefore, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. Basically, enjoy the life that God has given you. Now, he notes three categories here. Food and wine, nice clothing or luxuries of life, and marital bliss or marital pleasure. Look at first, food and wine. He says, eat your bread in happiness, drink your wine with a cheerful heart. And here again, the original blessing of creation is on full display. God did not create a colorless, joyless world. He created a world with infinite variety and delights for every sense. Do you ever think, why do we have five senses? It is to experience the world. It is the senses in which we interact with the world, in which we interact with one another, and we experience God's goodness in it. He didn't create us as image bearers, as mere creatures to survive like an insect. 
but he created and designed us to live in a world full of abundance and delight that would itself reflect the joy of God and the happiness of the divine life, the abundance of the divine life that spills over into his creative purposes and ultimately his redeeming purposes. And so he says, eat your bread in happiness, in happiness, not in gloom, but in happiness. This is a marvelous aspect of creation. He made us to delight and find happiness in a good meal. Think of the meal. Think of food. The variety of textures, colors, smells, taste, the kinds of food there are. Think of the endless combinations of flavors and even arrangements for food with almost an endless possibility of creation and enjoyment. People who love to cook know there's always something new to experiment, always something new to try together. If you go to some expensive restaurants... They, you're paying more for the presentation than the food, let me tell you, right? That much food and a big, pretty plate. And why do they always put it on big plates to put such a small amount of food? You know, it's this big plate with this little thing of meatness, whatever. But the point is, is that even in the food that we eat, there's a kind of artistry, there's a kind of creation, there's a kind of delight that's meant to please all of the seasons. It's meant to smell good, look good, taste good, be pleasing to the eyes. All of these things. This is God's abundance. He says, drink your wine with a cheerful heart. Now, some may chafe at this. Some don't. The issue of wine is a sensitive subject for many. We'll just mention that here. There is universal agreement that drunkenness is sin. There is no doubt that in the Old Testament particularly, and even in the New Testament, wine was a picture of celebration. It was a picture of abundance. It was a picture of God's blessing and God's flourishing. That's, that's clear. And not only wine, but other places, even other alcoholic beverages. But this is a matter of strong disagreement in the church. Some say it's God-honoring to embrace God's gift of alcoholic beverages or wine when done responsibly. Some say it's dangerous and can ruin our witness or it leads to sin. And a person's conscience or position on this is often influenced largely not merely by biblical data, but by their own life experiences. If somebody grew up in a family where somebody was enslaved to alcohol and they saw its damaging and deadly effects, they saw a life ruined and they saw relationships ruined and they come to its harm, they're going to have a certain opinion in their conscience formed about it, which is not wrong. It's their own conscience. It's their own way. If somebody lives in a neighborhood or certain cultures where enslavement to alcohol is a particular problem, then it would be unwise for them to enjoy that in certain cultures. It would ruin the witness. It would affect the gospel, and they may choose not to. If someone did not have those negative experiences and saw wine or alcohol responsibly enjoyed with self-control, without drunkenness or without carelessness and causing someone else to stumble, they're not going to be encumbered with those same hesitancies towards Alcohol, their conscience is going to be more free. The reality is that Scripture never condemns wine or alcoholic beverages, but soundly condemns drunkenness and gives stern warnings of the dangers of alcohol if not understood to be enjoyed responsibly. But the greater issue, however, is this, and this is the only point I'll make on this, is not whether one drinks or doesn't drink alcohol or affirms it or doesn't. The greater issue is this, is merely to realize that God has left this an issue to the individual's conscience. That's the issue. And that we are to love one another who have different positions on it. And we are to respect one another's positions and not flaunt those differences. That's the main point. We don't flaunt it. We don't judge it over to each one the Lord stands. That's Romans 14. Now that's a bigger discussion. I'm only mentioning it here. But here, clearly in the context, and particularly within his old covenant context, he says, drink your wine with a cheerful heart. It is the blessing of God. Let your clothes be white all the time and let it not oil not be lacking on your head. These are the luxuries of life. He's commending the enjoyment of the good things of life. White clothes were a luxury worn for a coolness in the hot climate. It also pictures cleanness, which has a sense of comfort and has a sense of ease. You're not wearing white, clean white working out in the field. You're doing it in the comfort of your home, enjoying the coolness that it brings. The oil was often a sign of blessing, as you know, spiritually and practically. It was pleasing and protective to those in the ancient Near East and still many today because the skin was often exposed to the sun. And so oil brought comfort. It brought protection. And so the idea is this. Look, wear comfortable clothes. Use soothing oil for your skin. Why? Because it's comfortable. It feels nice. It looks good. It's healthy. Enjoy these things that God has given 
Sometimes Christians, and certainly in the, the history of the Christian church, there is this sort of exaltation of asceticism as a kind of spirituality, a kind of that if the more I deny myself anything good or pleasure, the more God must be pleased with my life and the more spiritual. Well, there is a place for self-denial, obviously. And there is the warning, too, that sin indwells in us, and we're always prone to an idolatry towards the good things that God gives. That's true, but the other side of it is, is we are given these things to enjoy them. Imagine if you had a child or a friend and you gave them a special gift, something that you knew that they particularly liked and you wanted them to enjoy it. And they said, thank you, thank you, but I'm not going to enjoy this because I don't want it to affect my love for you. You'd be like, what? My love for you is expressed and, 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 and increased or my delight in, because of my love for you is increased by your enjoyment of the gift. Not, not in spite of it. And that's how God is with us when it is, and we'll come back to that. But sometimes Christians have a, guilt, a guilty conscience and a hard time enjoying God's good gifts. I feel guilty for buying the best clothes that I can buy because there's people suffering in Africa. Well, we're not in Africa. We're here. If you were in Africa and sent to minister to people in Africa, then you should be willing to give all of that up to serve the purposes of God for your life in Africa. If you're not, if you're in the middle of Newtown, Connecticut, then wear a polo <laughs> or whatever you want to wear. This is the idea. The idea is simply this. Wear and enjoy the best things that God gives you the opportunity to enjoy. It's not sin. It's a means of being gratitude. It's a means of delighting in the good things that he gives God commends the enjoyment of the good things of creation, and here's the key, as long as the enjoyment is in the context of faith in him as creator and redeemer in Christ. That's the context, and this is exactly what Paul repeats, uh, this idea, you're familiar with it, in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 6, let me just read this. 1 Timothy 6, he says this, Instruct those who are rich in this present world to give away all of their money and to live a life of sacrifice and asceticism. Go join a monastery in the hottest desert that you can find and never give yourself any pleasure except fruit or water. Does he say that? Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited, not to fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us. See the... Parallel there, with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Enjoy them, but don't put your hope in them. As we know, as Solomon himself has told us, there is no ultimate joy in them, and his life itself has taught us that riches come and riches go. It's an unstable thing to put our hope in. Enjoy them while you have it, but hold them, enjoy them with a loose hand is the idea. Lastly, he gives marital pleasures. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life. Now notice here, before we mention that, there is in all of these a direct connection, a direct line to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. This is a part of enjoying the good creation that God has made. Placing man in the garden of an abundance. He said, out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every Every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. Eat your food and wine with a happy heart. He said as well in Genesis that man is to fill the earth and subdue it. We have the duty and the privilege of ruling over creation in such a way that it produces flourishing for humankind and for humanity. We are to enjoy white clothes and oil and all of the good things that creation can bring to us. And the apex of the entire creation account was this. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and unashamed. I like how one person summarized this section. He said, after all, speaking of enjoying God's creation, he says, after all, he created paradise where there was a garden with tons of acreage, with all the food you could ever eat. And then he put a husband and wife in that paradise with no clothes on. That sounds like a pretty good deal to me. That's Solomon's point here, essentially. This is a blessing of God within the covenant of marriage. Intimacy is more than physical. It includes the union of the whole life, the intimate companionship of total union, spiritual, 
physical, relational, all of these are aspects of the whole person intimacy within the covenant of marriage. But the crowning, the crowning creation of God that goes down to the very reality of gender is that the glory of that covenant is consummated, it is delighted in, it is continually affirmed in the enjoyment of physical delight, of physical intimacy. And Solomon has made a point of this in many places. We're just going to mention it. Drink water from your own cistern, fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed. Rejoice in the wife of your youth as a loving hind and a graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. That's the blessing of God. The whole book of Song of Solomon, I'm sorry, is not about Christ's love for the church. That is an implication of it, as Paul talks about in Ephesians 5, but he is a celebration of the marital love of a husband and a wife within the covenant of marriage in which that exclusive bond of physical intimacy is the seal of that union, the seal of that covenant, to be blessed by God. Now, in all of these things, under the conditions of sin, these good gifts, the pleasures, as we have noted and, and already know, can easily become idols. The love of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. All of those are ways that the world has taken these good gifts, food, and turned it into gluttony. The fine things of life and turned it into greed and oppression and power. Marital Love, that is the exclusive content of the covenant of marriage, has been turned into something greedy and selfish and a pastime. So the world ruins these things, but for the believing heart who knows the redemption of these things and has been given a new heart and can enjoy them in light of the glory of God and with a thankful heart, a truly thankful heart that's pleasing to God, he says, enjoy them. Now, I skipped over it, but go back because this is going to lead us to the table. And to a deeper point, actually, that Solomon is making here. Go back to verse 7 and look at the end of that. He says, For God has already approved your works. That is a fantastic statement. God has already approved your works. In other words, take all of these good things and enjoy them. God has already approved and made possible your enjoyment of them. Now, what is the deeper point there? Remember the context in which Solomon is writing this. He is writing this as a member of the covenant people of God who knew the redemption of God, the forgiveness of God, the maintaining of this covenant constantly through the emblems of the temple, the sacrifice, the priesthood. This was a God who has redeemed his people. This is a God who maintained his fellowship with his people through their obedient trust in him, through their obedient life with him, through the obedient delight in him, through the reminder that the sacrifice was what God provided as an atonement for their sin. The temple was a reminder of his presence with them. The whole complex of those covenant symbols was in fact a reminder that there was an inbreaking again of that reality of Eden, the Garden of Eden. He was reestablishing his presence with men. It was there in a microcosm, ultimately to be revealed in the new heavens and the new earth. He's not saying enjoy all these things to the wicked and to the unclean and to the unjust. He's saying this to the one who knows him. So God has already approved of your works. Why? Because God has redeemed you. Because you stand by him in a relationship of grace. A relationship continually de demonstrated by his covenant with you. Enjoy the good things of God because he by grace has given them to you. As one noted and is absolutely true. This is, a, a, this is a, as near as Solomon gets in here to Paul's own doctrine of justification by faith. In other words, you're redeemed. You've been justified. You stand in him complete. We can enjoy the things that God gives to us because he has removed the burden of sin. He has given a new heart. He has given to us the blessing and the riches of his mercies and kindness. 
He's already approved of your works. This is said of the redeemed. He has already brought you into fellowship. He has already made atonement for your sin. Again, he wouldn't have known that in the fullness that we know after the coming of Christ, but he knew that as a covenant believer. He did know that. And so therefore, we have the freedom to enjoy these things. But it goes even more. It goes even more than that. Because Ecclesiastes come in a progress of revelation. And this truth is advanced in the light of the coming of Christ. This is Christ who does not merely tell us to live by faith and enjoy things as a covenant member of God's grace, of God's mercies, of God's promises. But we understand this as one in which we see that death has been defeated. There's an anticipation then in our hearts of the of what we've come or here of what we already know is the greater realities in our heart because of the appearance of Christ. And that's exactly again where Paul keeps pointed. Paul is a reflection of Romans 8 of Ecclesiastes here is that look, all creation is groaning, death is coming, it's subjected in futility, but it's futility isn't the end. It's subjected in hope. It's the end for this creation, but it's in hope for the people of God and even for creation that knows it will one day be released into the freedom of the sons of God and it will know the end for which God ultimately made all things. The New Testament then takes this truth we know and say that death is a reality and believers can expect suffering in the world. We know that we'll die, but we also know in a way that Even Solomon didn't know, and that is the promise of Christ, the one who believes in me will never die. We read it in Solomon. He has triumphed over all evil. He has removed the condemnation of sin. He has brought life and light into the world through his son. He is building his church and his kingdom. And so we embrace this at even a greater level. We embrace this in light Full light, full embrace of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is the, I'll read and then we'll come to the table. And it's this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says this. He said already in 15 that death is the final enemy to be destroyed. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. And then he says, oh death, where is your victory? He says, this perishable will have put on the imperishable, this mortal will have put on the immortal, and then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, and this is, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why can we do that? Knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. There's meaning, there's purpose to everything that we do here and it's ultimately looking forward to that final reward where we take our obedient faith. We take whatever God by grace enabled us to do and we give him praise and glory and honor for it through all eternity. It has meaning, it has purpose. We live in the Meaningless of this life on its own, but in its great glorious purpose in light of God's redeeming work in Christ. And by faith, we can be abounding in his work to his glory. And this is what we anticipate in this table. So as we take these elements, if you have one of these, does anybody not have one of them? If you don't, okay. Did somebody raise their hand? No. Okay, we take these elements... And this is the very thing that we are reminded of here. What are we reminded of in these elements? Well, many things, the whole full truth of the new covenant and of the person of Christ is symbolized in these elements that everything the New Testament bears witness to in all of Scripture, but the New Testament particularly in the coming of Christ that he is the word made flesh. He is the son who took on the full experience of humanity. Why? To make us sons and daughters. Because we were adopted in Christ before the foundation of the world. We commemorate the reality that he accomplished this for us by an obedience to the Father in love for the Father and love for his people given to him. He redeemed them. He gave his life, his body as an offering for sin once and for all complete 
accomplished, done, total. He did that for us, and we remember this. We remember then that we are the representation of his body on earth. We are indwelled by his spirit. We are his people. We are the body of Christ. We are the temple, as it were, indwelled by the spirit. We are, by God's purposes in the new covenant, the way he manifests his presence on earth through his people, by the spirit of God. We have access to him. We have been reconciled to him. We live in fellowship with him. We anticipate his return. He who is right now at the right hand of the Father for us, making intercession for us, will one day leave that position in his same body that he has right now. And he will return to earth in the glory of his Father with all of the holy angels and he will establish his kingdom. And we proclaim this reality until he comes. And so Paul says, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's, by faith, remember the Lord together. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, and he reminded them and continually reminds us that this cup is representative of the new covenant established, redeemed, or the new covenant established, made true in the sense of all its fullness for us by his blood, his violent death, his atoning death on our behalf. And he said, do this, drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me, for as often as we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink together. Let me pray, and then after I pray, I'm gonna ask uh, some people to come up front, some new members. So we are just be a couple of minutes behind. So if you have children, maybe you could, after I pray, go grab them uh, and then come back as we take just a couple minutes to remember recognize our new members. Father, thank you for these glorious truths that, Lord, we are not met, uh, left in a, in, in a dismal despair. We are not left without hope. Death is a reality. Sin is a reality. But the greater reality that triumphs over all of that is that Christ has defeated death and that one day it will be abolished forever when you destroy this present earth and you bring in a new heavens and a new earth ultimately, in which only righteousness dwells, in which we will be there in resurrected bodies, never to be threatened by sin again. Lord, we thank you for this glorious accomplishment, this wonderful truth. We pray that you would strengthen our hearts by faith to live for you in humility, according to the truth, and trustingly under your divine hand, that we might be salt and light in this world. And it's to that end we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.